Hello and welcome to the Jesuit Border Podcast. This podcast explores the Catholic response along the U.S.-Mexico border. My name is Louis Hotop. And I'm Brian Strasberger. We're a pair of Jesuit priests missioned to the Diocese of Brownsville, Texas. We're not from the border, but we live here now. This podcast will highlight some of the work that the Catholic Church and others are doing to address the needs on the border as we explore immigration topics from the perspective of Catholic social teaching. Let's begin. Vamos. Our topic this week is rights and responsibilities. We'll be interviewing Nancy Demas, who is the director of Project Dignity Legal Team, which provides legal aid and counsel to migrants and asylum seekers here in the Rio Grande Valley. Stay tuned for that, but first, let's talk a little bit about our work at the Humanitarian Respite Center, or HRC, run by Catholic Charities out of McAllen, Texas. Sure, we've been working in the HRC now for about four months, and the HRC is a place where people who've been accepted into the United States to begin the very beginnings of the asylum process are sent to the HRC so that they can get plane tickets, they can get hygiene needs, they can take a shower, they can go to a pharmacy there, but it's it's this first step into the United States so that they can get to their host family or host organization that's going to help them as they go through the asylum process. Yeah, the numbers that have been coming through the HRC have fluctuated a lot in terms of being, uh, when we first got here in July and August, we were seeing hundreds up to over a thousand a day, and now the numbers are lower, but when it was more crowded over the summer, we would just get peppered with questions as we're walking around the HRC, and as though we were experts just because we had a Catholic Charities t-shirt on and our clerics or, or whatnot. And so one of those frequent questions is, you know, what is going to happen if I go to the airport? What's going to happen if I go to the bus station? Do I have, am I going to get arrested? You know, do I have a right to be here? And that's all tied up with this, the talks of rights and responsibilities is, Although we didn't know uh, much when we would be asked questions oftentimes about the way the HRC was run or, you know, whatever questions the migrants were peppering with us with, one thing I always tried to emphasize to them is right now you have a right to be here. You have entered the asylum process and you have a right to travel, to be reunited with your family. It's not over. Your journey is not over. You have not been granted asylum status yet, but go forward from here with the confidence that you do have a right to be here. And this process exists within U.S. law to protect people, to uphold their dignity, to to acknowledge that there are reasons that people would want to and need to flee whatever they're fleeing to come to this country. And that's because of a whole history of the United States of accepting people through a process like this. So it is a confusing thing when when there is all this rhetoric about all these people entering the country and how, you know they're stealing all this all the blah 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 blah, you know, all the politics when really this this is a right of people to enter and to seek asylum and it's within US law to do it. You know, and it, so it's, it shouldn't be shocking to us that, that somebody can enter the United States and begin the asylum process. That is, that is a right that they have that has been in U.S. law for a very long time. 
it can be confusing. The process itself can be confusing. And so is, so are the travel experiences that they're about to undergo, whether that's riding on a long bus or going to an airport. Many of the asylum seekers that we meet have never been on an airplane before. And so the whole experience of travel, you think about how confusing it can be navigating when you've got a layover or multiple layovers, you're changing uh, terminals, or you've got a different gate that you're going out of, and navigating that whole system can be very confusing. So one of the things that the HRC does when they're helping to book travel for the migrants is they put everything in one giant manila folder that's got a single piece of paper with very large font printed on one side that says, please help me, I don't speak English. So it's something that the migrant can, or asylum seeker can show to someone in the airport if they're getting lost or confused and use it to help, uh, to look for help. And so these become calling cards when you're traveling, you know, and you're aware of this. You can see, you start to see people in the airport with these different pieces of paper that say, and the, the envelope is, is pretty hard to miss. And so we have both had experiences of traveling out of Brownsville through the Harlingen Airport and seeing migrants who we knew at the shelter passing through this this same system. So uh, very, my own story of it was I was in the, in the terminal there in Harlingen, and all of a sudden I see this folder. It says, please help me. I don't speak English. And so I went over and introduced myself, said that I, I worked at the HRC, and uh, it was a woman with five little girls. So one woman traveling with five little girls, which is hard enough already. Let alone if you've never been to a U.S. airport or an airport at all. And so I asked her if she wanted help. We were going to Houston Hobby. And uh, she said, no, 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 I can figure it out. But as soon as I sat by them on the airplane, and as soon as we got off the airplane, I knew they were just going to be shocked at how big Houston Hobby is, how many people were there, how, how fast they were moving. And so I went back over to them and said, I can help you get to your gate. <laughs> and so we did. And, it, you know, it was like little ducks. Like she and I were walking side by side and then all five girls walking right behind us, you know, struggling with their bags and everything. But, but imagine, you know, never, never seeing this reality, never being in this reality, and then having to navigate it for the first time with your children. You know, so I had so much compassion for her and, and uh you know, felt felt moved by her. She is willing to step into this very unknown reality, in order to in order to find some hope for her family, in order to perhaps flee a very difficult situation. My own story: I'm at the Harlingen Airport, waiting at the gate, and like so many other people, I'm just buried in my phone, just distracting myself until they call for us to board. When out of the corner of my eye, I notice that giant Manila envelope. And that catches my eye. And I look up, and sure enough, there is a family, a, parent, a, a young man, young woman with a young child, with a young daughter, who are lining up with another group of people who there's probably 10 or 15 of them all carrying these manila envelopes. I walk up. I greet them. I say, oh, you know, I'm Father Brian. I help out at the HRC a couple times a week. And were you there this morning? And they explain that they were. And I'm like, have you flown before? Not one of them had been on an airplane before. I'm like, oh, great. It's going to be an adventure, and it's safe and fine. And we're flying up to Dallas and all had connecting flights. said, let's meet when we get off, and let's figure this out. We do that. We go up to the gate to look at where all their connecting flights are, one after another, just saying, okay, this is the gate number. Just go and wait there. It's, it's pretty easy, and I think they probably could have managed that until I get to a flight that says, 
Denver, here's the flight number, here's the flight departure time and the gate, and right next to it, it says canceled. In English, nothing more, just canceled. I'm like, oh my goodness, how are we going to figure this out? So I walk with the family over, we wait in line at that gate. This is the family with the, the, the married couple with the young child, the young daughter. We're waiting in line. I'm asking everyone else in the line, and sure enough, all of them also are on this in the same situation. Their flight's been canceled. We get up to the front. The two gate agents, very helpful, but neither of them spoke Spanish, which that can happen at any gate that you'd go to in an airport. So I'm trying to navigate and figure it out. She says, oh, yeah, they've been rebooked on a flight to Denver, but it goes through Austin first. I'm like, can you just get them on a direct flight, please? So got them rebooked on a direct flight. They had about a, instead of a one or two hour layover, they had a six or seven hour layover. But I said, here's your gate. Stay here. The flight's going to leave and it's going to get you to Denver this evening. And I just, I walked away from that family as I went to get my, on my own gate and catch my flight thinking, man, what, what does their day look like? Otherwise you miss that flight or it's canceled and you can't figure it out. It just reminded me of how complicated the situation can be to navigate when it's something that's so foreign and unfamiliar. So it made me really realize that when we send people off at the HRC where we spend our days and we're like, okay, you've got a flight. Okay, you've got a bus. Their journey's not over. It's not over. That's right. And they, it, it continues from there, you know. It yeah. just keeps going and going and going. So, I mean, that's just one little snapshot of what people have to go through and travel with young kids. I mean, I can't get over that. I, that's, you know, one of the benefits of not having children is you don't have to travel with them. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but, you know, another an, an, another part of this is so many people have had these canceled flights. So many people recently, you know, thousands yeah. of canceled flights, American Airlines, Southwest Airlines. And imagine having to go through that and the stress of going through that, but not being able to speak the language at all. Mm-hmm. You know, that, I mean, that I would, I don't know what I would do. Well, you know, clearly this is a very complicated topic, the topic of asylum seeking and and your rights and responsibilities. And we always, always, always have questions about it. And the person that we turn to when we have... Our number one. When we have these questions is Nancy Demas. I mean, it is... She is our resource. She is our encyclopedia. She is, she is really the, the source of all knowledge when it comes to these things. We've been here four months and she hasn't started blocking our calls yet, but it's guaranteed that she's going to be screening it soon because she's we gonna... call and text her all the time. This interview might be the end of it, I think. On today's episode, we have with us a good friend here in the Valley, Nancy Demas. She's the executive administrator of Project Dignity Legal Team and also the chair of the board for the Good Neighbor Settlement House. Thank you for being with us, Nancy. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. One of the first questions I want to lead off with is uh, you grew up in the Valley. You're from the area. And so we're new arrivals. We've just been here since July and are still getting used to the area and getting familiar with it. But you've grown up here, which means you've seen 
probably a lot of change in your lifetime about what the reality is like here on the border and the interaction across the border and even changes in immigration policy and things like that. But not to get into the into the weeds there, but I wonder if you could just speak about kind of the lived experience of growing up in the valley and maybe how you've seen it evolve over the past over the past several decades. Yeah, sure. Um, well, obviously, it's been a pleasure to welcome you both and all the Jesuits that I've had the privilege to meet through you all. So I welcome you guys again on behalf of Brownsville. And yes, Brownsville native, uh, born and raised in Brownsville. And um, yeah, I mean, I definitely have seen the difference from, you know, being here, being raised in Brownsville, growing up in Brownsville, uh, having family in Matamoros right across the bridge in Mexico and having uh, more family deeper into Mexico as well. But Matamoros was the place that we went to every weekend. I would say probably sometime when I was probably in the in high school, early 90s, I would say that it's when you really started seeing the difference in Mexico. I mean, our, it was a lot more difficult to go visit family in Mexico where we had to be a lot more careful where we went. We couldn't just, you know, easily walk across the bridge and, and walk over to Thea's house because it was, you know, there was a lot more uh, gang um, activity going on. Now, when you are going to Mexico, as, as I'm sure you all have learned, you know, you kind of got to plan it out. What times are you going? What time does the sun go down? You know, those kind of things that you just do have to take into mind now. One of the reasons we asked you to be here on this on this podcast is because of your work across the border with migrants and on this side as well with Project Dignity legal team. And so just want to ask, you know, what does what does that work look like? Could you describe that for people who are who are listening in and and how does how does that kind of work um, sort of inform your own your own approach to the migrants? You know, when you, when you encounter them. Well, um, Project Dignity Legal Team. That's uh, I'll I'll start there by saying you know uh, it was created through the, at the request of Sister Norma Pimentel, who is obviously the executive director of Catholic Charities RGV. Um, as I'm sure a lot of people know, and as you all have learned, is that she's you know a big advocate for immigrants and trying to give them and and trying to give them the comfort and whatever kind of need that they have out there. It's trying to support them in some way or somehow. I started with Sister Norma in volunteering over at the shelter in McAllen, and we what we decided to do was that we just needed to do something else other than just giving these people you know, the shoes, the clothing, the food. And she said, you know what, we got to figure out a way how we can prepare these people for when they do make it across the bridge. And um, so we've started by going out to Matamoros and reaching out to people and, you know, kind of trying to figure out the need first. You know, we obviously there was a need for the regular basic necessities, but a lot of the questions that these individuals had were legal questions. And uh, I have worked in a law firm for over 20 years, but I had never done immigration work. And so it was kind of difficult to be able to assist sister um, with those legal immigration questions, right? So this is when she said, you know what, we need to create a legal team. So that's where Project Dignity Legal Team came about. And we've, we've been very privileged in being able to work with different immigration attorneys who have been part of the team. We basically um, give them the basic necessities through Catholic Charities. Um, 
like I said, from shoes, clothing, food, uh, phone calls with family, reassuring them that they're going to get to their destination safely. And then we also take the time to sit down and, and discuss to, with them of knowing the rights that they have and explaining to them what we call the seguimiento, what they have to do. We have to, you know, obviously explain to them that now that you are in the United States, that, you know, this is just the beginning of the immigration process. So just kind of giving that knowledge to them, I think, is, is extremely helpful. Our theme for this week's episode is rights and responsibilities. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, these charlas or talks that you give to migrants uh, in terms of their rights and maybe what, you know, what are the questions that, that they often come with and what is it part of what you're trying to communicate to them? So these are often, we're talking about asylum seekers. So people who uh, are leaving countries for uh, risk against them for a variety of reasons, and they're seeking safety and security and shelter here in the United States. Uh, and they've been admitted into the country, but their case has not been resolved yet. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. So the majority of them are coming uh, with the um, idea of what they have heard, el asilo, you know, asking for the asylum. And, um, you know, the majority of them do qualify because they are leaving their country because they fear something, you know, they, they, and, they, and they fear to return. So what, what we try to do is when they do get to the United States to either the respite center through Catholic Charities or through uh, the Good Neighbor Settlement House, which is another organization that helps a lot of people through Brownsville. Um, what we do is we try to do the charlas, which is the know your rights, and basically giving them the basic information, which is uh, letting them know that they definitely have to follow up with immigration, which is the ICE uh, check-ins that they have to do, and that there is also another process, which is the immigration court. And that's one very important thing that we've been able to share with people that um, they that they don't know. They think that they just have to go see a judge and then that's it. No, there's the ICE check-ins that they have to do. And then the other process is the, the, the court. So what we'd also explain to them is that there's different categories of immigration. Um, it doesn't mean that everybody will qualify um, for the asylum, for the asylum. So we kind of bring that to light because that is the reality, that not all of them will qualify for the asylum. But um, obviously, we don't spend enough time with these individuals while they're here in the border towns to be able to identify that. But we do uh, let them know that, that there is that option and that there is other options, too. It's not just the asilo. So their case is still very much in progress. They've still they've got the check-ins that they've got to do. They've still got a court case. Now, this is something that plays out over several months or more. Correct? Right, right. And in the meantime, they do are afford those are some responsibilities that they have. But in the meantime, they are afforded certain rights, right, including Correct. the right to be right. here. Because, you know, obviously they they're already in fear. They're coming. They've already traveled for some have traveled for days, some for weeks, some for months, you know. Um, and so what we try to do is to let them know that now that they have been processed and that they've been given documentations through um, uh, immigration, they do have the right to be here. They do not have to be in fear of, of being here. Now they have the documentations to allow them to be here so that they can follow the immigration process and then make the courts will then eventually make a determination whether they get to stay here permanently or not. And yeah, that is a process that can take up to months and to years. 
And you're really, you're really having to ride these waves with people, you know, the change in the law, the change in the system, the, the change in who the migrants are, where, you know, where they're coming from or where they're living or where they're at in the city, all that. And I'm wondering if, if as you're thinking about that time, especially, is there, are there any individual stories that come to mind? Any, any people that you really accompanied that you'd like to just kind of give voice to their story? Because I, I think those stories really help to show, to show people the reality, you know? I think one story that I have shared with my sisters and, and obviously being women and, and, and strong-minded women and, and the, 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 the women in my family all think the same way, because I think this is something that we would easily do, right? There was a, a lady from Honduras who uh, was a, a, a housekeeper for a other family, but had her worked very hard to be able to get her kids to go to, to school. And um, she had been able to get them through elementary, and then the, one of them was already in high school, and she was just very proud of that. And, and I think in being able to do that, um, that really motivated her to want to do more for other kids in her community. And um, she shared a story with me that in her area, in her neighborhood, she decided to go and reach out to the local um, city managers, or I'm not sure what you would call them over there, but um, she reached out to them to see if there was any way that they could, you know, just set up a small park for the kids to have. Uh, because she also wanted to have somewhere where her kids could go and enjoy it. Her kids had were already a little bit more grown up, but she wanted to be able to help the other kids in her neighborhood. And so she went and reached out to them, and obviously she was ignored. And then she went and reached out to, I guess, you know, the alcalde with the mayor, and then, you know, really started trying to figure out, like, this can be done. If there's money out there and we can, and we know that we can probably do this, she was willing to do the fundraising herself. I mean, it was an amazing story as how you could just see how she just um, became more and more motivated to want to do this for her community. It got to the point where the local politicians did not like what she was doing. And they came and they came to knocked on her door and said, you need to stop. We're not going to build this park. We are not going to do what you want. And you need to stop. Well, she said she literally prayed and put it in God's hand and said, should I stop? And she chose not to and continued to go to the higher government to be able to see if there's any way that they could continue with this park because she wanted to. It was in her heart to do it. Um, long story short, um, she finally was threatened. They threatened, they threatened her, both children coming home from school. They actually hurt her, her son, her, that was in middle school and, and brought him to her front door bleeding and said, if you don't stop, it's going to get worse. Um, even then she still tried to report that once she did start reporting it, then they came physically and, you know, did horrible things, as you can imagine. And they told her she had to leave. So she left the country and decided to come this way. And I just thought I was so heartbroken because I thought, you know, here's this woman just simply trying to do something good, not only for herself, for her children, for her community, and wanted to be able to, wanted to be able to, you know, share what it is that she had seen, how how encouraging her children to go to school, she saw them happier, she saw them more confident, and she just wanted to be able to do that for other kids in her community. And so her and I, to this day, we talk, and, and she's now actually in, um, in Tampa, Florida. Uh, she was able to, she did have family in the United States, so we were able to help her. Um, she had 
she was a very, obviously, very wise woman and had a lot of evidence that she brought with her that it, we were able to help her with uh, an asylum case. And um, she's now here with her kids, and now they're going to school here. But she misses her, her country and her community because, I mean, obviously, she had a lot of uh, love for her community, and um, she had to leave it. She was forced to leave it. So that's one story that definitely hit home. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the things that gets missed is is everyone comes with a story. Everybody comes with with some sort of experience that has driven them from their home. And yet it's still their home. You know, it's it's still someplace she was clearly devoted to, someplace she she clearly had roots and wanted to care for herself. And then because of the situation is forced to uproot and go. And I don't think that's always acknowledged in, in the kind of two-dimensional face that we sometimes are presented with about migrants. And, and when you think about that, though, when you think about how migrants are presented in the media or how they're, how they're presented in just sort of the discourse of our country, is there something you wish people understood about that reality? When you're, when you're looking north, you know, to, to the rest of the country, is there something you wish they understood about the reality here on the border and especially from the perspective of, of your work with the migrants? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I would want people to know is that a lot of these individuals do come with these kinds of stories. You know, uh, you know, a lot of people just forget that they did not want to leave their country. They did not want to leave their neighborhoods. They did not want to leave family. They, they just, you know, they were forced to. And uh, I would say a good majority of them are, are in those situations. You know, you, I've, I've had the privilege to be able to meet, you know, these wonderful professionals that came from these different countries who, who did not, they, they literally will tell me, I did not want to leave my country. I was forced to leave. And I feel like, you know, a lot of people in our country just think that people are just, you know, running and storming and trying to get into the United States. And a lot of a lot, that's one thing that I would want people to know, that that's not necessarily the case. There's people that were very happy in their countries and in their communities. But, you know, be due to circumstances and to all this, you know, obviously violence and uh, government corruption that they just didn't have a choice. And then and, and they they do have a choice to want to have a better life for themselves and for their children. And so me as a mom, I would, I would do the same thing. I would run with my son anywhere where I know that I can give him a safe environment. So that's what I would definitely bring to light. The flip side of the rights question is the sense of responsibilities. Um, Certainly, we talked about some of the responsibilities the migrants themselves have as they come in here in terms of having to do check-ins and go through a process and things like that. But we can also talk about, you know, what is what is our responsibility? You know, what kind of responsibilities do we assume uh, with the privilege that we live with? What kind of responsibilities should the United States of America assume with this sort of situation? Yeah, well, I think that there's definitely responsibility on both sides. I think that's one of the parts where a lot of people feel that they that these individuals are wanting to come in and not fulfill regular responsibilities as any American citizen does. I, 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 it upsets me when people uh, just automatically assume that. I think a lot of these individuals know that they're coming into the United States having to fulfill responsibilities that are not just given by the ICE department, uh, the immigration courts, but as well as, you know, local state laws. Um, so 
there's responsibility on both ends. I would say that there's responsibility on the individuals that are wanting to come and stay in the United States, and then there's responsibility on our local governments and our state and federal government in being able to provide uh, an equal opportunity to be able to allow these individuals to simply come in and say, okay, if you want asylum, okay, this is the process. But having to change this process on them so frequently and adding, you know, so many requirements and adding just so many hurdles that sometimes, in my opinion, and just my opinion, is that unreasonable hurdles at times. Um, and and putting, um, putting individuals in circumstances that it would very clearly be impossible to be able to fulfill what it is that our local or state or federal government is wanting for them to, to these individuals to fulfill. When you think about... Uh when you think about, well, we're Catholic priests, mm-hmm. so <laughs> we can a- we can ask questions like this. But when you think about your own your own faith experience, your own experience of of Catholicism or Christianity, your own experience of of uh, the church, how has that how has that influenced what you do and how you do it? Well, I think it's because of my faith that I can do what I do. I truly wake up every morning and ask God to give me um, a sense of of peace. I always pray for um, that he give me the right words to share with these individuals, uh, because sometimes I can personally get caught up in in being impatient with the system, uh, frustrated with what, you know, what what it is, why things are moving so slowly for these individuals. Um, But I think it's because of my faith that I can uh, continue to do what I do and continue to encourage these individuals uh, to not lose faith. And, And yes, the reality is that not everybody will get through and not everybody will get to stay in the United States. But if I can be, a, you know, a you know, small little part into being able to give individuals either the guidance or, or hope or some sort of faith that will allow them to continue to go forward and not give up and, and, and be able to want to strive to be able to have, you know, that peaceful life or a safe to simply a safe environment where they can live then I think it's because of my faith that I can get up in the mornings and, and do it over and over. Do you have any model or inspiration or someone you turn to, um, a, a role model that has inspired you in some of the, some of the work that you do and the kind of person or, uh, or story that you turn to for inspiration or that helps motivate you in the work that you do? What really, truly started it for me, and, and this goes even way back before helping Sister Norma at the Respite Center, is um, Father T.J. Martinez, who I know you all know. Um, he just one day was visiting, and um, uh, we, I don't know how the conversation started, but we were talking about our community and, and you know, Brownsville and stuff. And then he just and he just turned around and looked at me and he's like, so what are you doing to give back to your community? And I literally stood there and I said, you know what? I don't know what I'm doing. I don't think I'm doing anything to give back to my community. And meaning like community to me is not, I mean, yes, I take care of my responsibilities. I I take care of my son, my sisters, my family, but my community, you know? And when he asked me that, I literally walked away thinking, I've got 
to do something. I want to be able to fully answer that question if somebody were to ever ask me that again, that I am doing something to give back to my community. And I mean, I'm literally two blocks away from Good Neighbor Settlement House, you know, who takes care of a lot of our homeless in our community. And I said, I literally went there two days later. I said, where do I sign up? I need to give back. And I think that's where it truly started for me. You know, once I, I got involved with the, the Good Neighbor and being able to uh, help the homeless in our community, I, I think that's kind of where the the light, the fire started in me. And I said, I have to figure out a way to be able to, to help more. And then that's when we met Sister Norma. We saw what she was doing. I had to help there. And then obviously I didn't have the immigration background. I got the privilege to meet Jody Goodwin, who in my eyes is my superstar immigration lawyer, and she inspired me in the work that it is that she does and how she, you know, fought for these individuals. And then I got to meet another immigration attorney, Ankel, and I, I mean, it just went on and on. And I, so, I mean, I can literally sit here and tell you how I feel that God has put a lot of these individuals in my life to, to guide me so that I can continue to do what I do and give back because that's truly what I want to do is I want to give back because I feel very blessed in, in the life that I have. And I want to be able to give back in some way, somehow. And we can't do it alone, right? I mean, nobody can do this alone, you know? So I feel like um, these individuals and these different people have been put in my life to be able to help me be able to do it and me to help them to be able to continue to to give and help. Well, and it's amazing how, how that simple call you know, what are you doing for your community that you heard from Father TJ, then deepened and deepened and deepened and deepened. You know, God, God doesn't just call us once. God keeps calling us to more and more. And, and, but there's something freeing about that too, that, that you can continue to say yes. And, and that's the sign of a, of a true follower of Christ is that, you know, we're always invited to say yes, to say yes, to say yes. And, and clearly you have. You know, and that's that's an inspiration for us and and for so many people that, you know, starting a good neighbor is one thing and an important way to serve the community. But just to see how that how that has grown and deepened just through you, you know, and what a miracle that really is. That's it's a it's a pleasure to even hear you reflect on that. From well, a, a volunteer who showed up there to now <laughs> chair of the board of yeah. Good Neighborhood Settlement yeah, House. It really has. It really has developed. And it, it's brought me and my family and, and my community a lot of joy. And I think that's that's been actually an, another beautiful part of it is that, uh, like I said, all the people that I've met, but all the people that I've met as I'm doing it and all the people that have decided to join in on the help, you know, and to be able to see how that has developed, that that is really, really great. I mean, that's a lot of what keeps me going as well. Well, thank you, Nancy, for joining us for our second episode of the Jesuit Border Podcast. And it's been a pleasure to have you. It's, it's so exciting to to be working alongside you down here and, and to learn so much from your own experience and your own knowledge of, of the immigration process and just from living here. Uh, it's been a huge uh, gift for us to know you and to be your friend. So thank you, Nancy. Well, thank you guys for having me. And, and you thank you all for being here as well, because we, didn't, we do need a lot of those prayers. And like the Pope says, uh, don't ever forget to pray for me. As well. So I ask you the same way. Pray for me so that we can continue to do the same.
that's our episode for this week. We're grateful to Nancy Demas for joining us. This podcast is edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the U.S. and hosted by the Jesuit Post. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to hear more about the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. We'll see you next week on the Jesuit Border Podcast. Nos vemos.